Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. And welcome to Farcast. Thank you all so much for joining us again on the Farcast here in early 2018. So much to talk about. Great Farcast last week. Tremendous guests discussing the opioid crisis in this country. Kenny Polcari, of course, helped us out last week, and we have a fabulous forecast for you this week. Absolutely terrific. And we are, again, going to hit one of those major issues. Kind of scary. Nobody wants to talk about it. Cybersecurity. We have a fabulous expert with us tonight. Segment three, Neelu Howe, who is the chief strategy officer at RSA Technologies. She is. I, I, I sat down and talked with Neelu for sort of a pre-interview about what's going on in uh, cybersecurity. Scared me to death. Wait till you hear what she has to say, and wait till you think about the economic ramifications of cybersecurity and what happens when everything we have becomes hackable. That's what she's going to talk about. So, uh, you know, we're going to begin, of course, uh, as we always do, uh, in just a second here with our dear friend Kenny Polcari to discuss markets. A couple of things. Remember that on the forecast, we believe that money is hard to make that we believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And that's where we, where we set out tonight. But before I get to Kenny, I'd like to uh, ask that you all remember a great person who passed away yesterday, Edward Eckenhoff. Ed Eckenhoff, a dear friend, was head of the National Rehabilitation Hospital in Washington. He's really a legend, and he was a legend not only in terms of what he accomplished in life, but as an example of an absolutely indomitable spirit who did so many wonderful things for so many people. I never left time with Eddie that I didn't feel better. Uh, if you want to go to OurAmericanDream.com, OurAmericanDream.com, there is a video that I made some years ago with Eddie. Uh, Eddie was a paraplegic. He founded this hospital. He was uh, lost his ability to walk in an automobile accident when he was in uh, college. And he founded this hospital. He had this wonderful life. He was in his 70s, and he was a terrific golfer. And I have a video of him playing golf. Truly inspirational. You think you're having a tough day? Take a look at this video. Remember my friend Eddie. So stock markets continued to roar here in the beginning of 2018, but whoops, China might not be uh, the voracious buyer of U.S. bonds anymore. They might even want to sell some of our U.S. bonds, and interest rates started to go up when interest rates started to go up on this unexpected news. And remember that markets don't like to be surprised. U.S. bonds started to sell off. The yields started to go higher. Stock prices didn't like it either. Welcome now, Kenny Polcari, Director of Floor Operations and Managing Director for O'Neill Securities, my very dear friend who is so bright, so articulate, so <laughs> handsome, and, of course, older than I am. Hey, Kenny, baby, how are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you? I'm doing just great. Thank you. So the markets seem, uh, you know, I looked up this morning, stocks were down 100 points, and I thought, well, hey, maybe this is it. This is, this is, uh, this is what Kenny was talking about, that unforeseen moment that would take stocks lower, but they bounced back, huh? Well, it did bounce back later in the afternoon, which was kind of interesting because uh, you're exactly right. This morning, it was that it was that that swan event that nobody really saw coming, and the news out of China that not that they're going to sell them yet, but they're just going to pull back on maybe how much they buy 
causing a little bit of kind of uncertainty. And so you saw the market react immediately. Then you had the, the NAFTA rumor coming out about uh, the Canadians think that we're about to pull out of NAFTA, which I don't think is going to happen, but I think he may try to, Trump may try to use it as more of a bargaining chip. But that also added to kind of the, the, the displeasure today with the market because those were two events uh, that people, you know, two events that people never expected. Now, that being said, the market did rally back. It was really the banks that led the rally back. Now, look, the banks are going to start reporting on Friday. J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, BlackRock are all reporting on Friday. Expectations are that they're going to blow the roof off the, off the house, right? 12% year-over-year growth. Certainly, J.P. Morgan, if you talk to me about anyone, J.P. Morgan is not going to disappoint. They never do. I can't see how Jamie Dimon is going to allow them to disappoint. So I fully expect that J.P. Morgan um, is going to beat their number. And I actually think... This, this, uh, this earnings season, you're going to see all the banks beat the estimates. And so that's adding to that kind of excitement. But that being said, the broader market remained weak. So people have to be just a little bit cautious as we move into earnings season. And this continued sort of a rotation that we've seen away from the riskier stocks. So a day like today, you see the uh, FANG stocks maybe not do quite as well. The Russell 1000 growth doesn't do as well. The Russell 1000 value does a little bit better. The Dow does a little bit better. And so the stuff that had been high flying seems to be trading places with stuff maybe with better balance sheets. Is that what you saw, too? Well, I think it's better balance sheets and stocks that are considered value. You know, and we talked about this, I think, one or two podcasts ago that I, I see, and I think a lot of the a lot of the strategists see this year, this move out of those really high growth, kind of exciting, sexy names into something a little bit more value-oriented, something that's got a big, solid balance sheet, because in the event of a, of a, a little bit of a market downturn, those bigger names, those big Americana blue chip names will get hurt less. And as so you're watching... There is that... Well, no, I was going to say, you know, as you're watching those big blue chip names and as you're watching those bank stocks, keep your eye on Exxon, too. Keep your eye. I mean, that's one of those value stocks that could, you know, yep. just because something's a value stock doesn't mean it's not going to go up. It could go up a lot. Absolutely. It could go up a lot. And it will go, hopefully, the value names will go down less in a market downturn than, uh, than certainly some of the high tech names, the biotech names, some of these growth names um, will certainly be subject to more volatility in the event that the market turns. And my sense is, you know, and I still believe that the market is going to turn, and I don't mean it's going to crash. I just think you're going to see more increased volatility as you continue to see this reallocation of money uh, into the different sectors. So I got three more things I, I, I got to get your opinion on tonight. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, we, we do appreciate you listening to the Farcast. And just know that Kenny and I, Kenny and I are going to get together. When is it? Is it are we next week, Kenny? Next, yeah, yeah, next, next week. week. Next week, Thursday. Kenny and I are. Kenny Thursday. and I will be uh, in our speedos out by the swimming pool. <laughs> Um, you know, I can hear women in Florida just going crazy right now in anticipation. Bokari, you know, and Far are going to be there by the pool uh, at the uh, Ritz and Cocoa Beach. We're speaking to the um, uh, annual economic forum for the YPO and WPO Young Presidents World Presidents Organization a uh, annual summit. Uh, they mistakenly invited Far and Polkari to come back. <laughs> you know, people do crazy things. But Kenny and I will be there, uh, and we're going to try and be to help some of these CEOs uh, and presidents of various companies uh, hone their outlook for 2018. So, Kenny, here are my three things. Uh, I saw Ralph Acampora, and you know he's a guy that you and I grew up with, but, but nobody seems to talk about him anymore. He said today... Uh, here's this is number one. He said today that this bull market, 
from a technical basis, is more powerful than the bull market of the late 90s. Now, I thought that, now this is a technical analyst, but that's an amazing comment. I'm going to come back to it. The other one is there was an article on CNBC based on the Buffett interview this morning. You know, Buffett getting ready to maybe transition some of the leadership at Berkshire Hathaway. Very dicey time, certainly. Uh, said that, you know, market optimism has reached a potential danger sign not seen, check this out, not seen since 1986. So on one hand, you've got the optimism showing a sign that we haven't seen a danger sign since 86. We've got Akampura saying it's going to be the best ever. And then, finally, Steve Leisman has an article tonight uh, on CNBC.com saying the Fed worrying about the next recession, next recession right. is considering changes to the way they look at this 2% inflation target. And, the, you know, economist Larry Summers said that um, in the other recessions, the Fed has typically lowered interest rates by five full percentage points. Well, they can't do that now. They don't have five points to use. So they might use something called price level targeting. So, Kenny, we're seeing these signs all over the board again with this market. What do you think about Ralph Alcampora, first of all, saying this is more powerful than the 90s? This thing keeps going up, he thinks. Well, listen, I think there's a certain part of it that certainly feels more powerful than the 90s. But, but remember, rates are artificially low. And central banks around the world, and Japan said it yesterday, they're starting to change their outlook on, on their quantitative easing. The, the uh, central banks around the world are starting to tighten. We're in that mode. The Fed is certainly doing it. The ECB is about to launch it. So, therefore, my argument against, against Ralph's analysis is it might be if rates were to stay where they are. But rates are not going to stay where they are, and that's where I think it's going to, you're going to run into some headwinds, and that's where I think that the market's going to stall as we move into uh, the first quarter. Okay, so for listeners who are, are, might be a little bit fuzzy on this, Ralph Alcampora is a technical analyst, and he draws his conclusions from looking at, at historical patterns in charts. And when he right. sees these patterns repeat, he makes these kind of conclusions. So Ra Ralph is looking at charts, and Kenny has just made an argument to what Ralph is suggesting based on fundamentals, ladies and gentlemen. So he's saying, look, this uh, Kenny is essentially saying something that we've been saying at Farm Miller for a long time, which is this market has been fueled by low interest rates and cheap money. And, uh, you know, if you start raising the price of money, aren't you going to – wouldn't you expect to slow the market's – uh, you know, froth um, here uh, a little bit. And so maybe we'll see. Maybe these, uh, these powerful charts are going to continue. Uh, you know, we, we, we always like good news, but we have to keep our heads about us because we're responsible for other people's money, right? We've got to be careful here. So what do you think about the optimism, the, the bullish signals that uh, I've gotten haven't been this high since 1986, Kenny? 86. Hell, even you and I were young in 86. Listen, I, I was there in 1982 when the, when the bull market was born, right? And then 1986. I hold you responsible, frankly, not only for that birth, but several <laughs> other births along the way. I know that you've probably gotten some of those paternity claims, but I'm going to go ahead and join in on this particular paternity claim that Kenny Polcari was the reason we had that bull market. So credit, yeah. <laughs> credit where credit's due, Kenny. Congratulations. Right. But remember the bull market in 1986. You remember what happened? the year after 1987, right? We had gotten so far ahead of ourselves and the momentum was 
was so strong and that everyone thought the market's never going down again. And right. then we hit that disaster in 1987, which caused, you know, kind of a, a rude awakening for so many people. And the same thing happened in 1937 when the Fed got a little aggressive on interest rates. You know, we had a good comeback after the crash of 29. There was some easy money. They raised rates too fast, threw us into recession, and boom, it got ugly. Fa- so, you know, 1927, 90 years ago, was that first year where every month of the year showed positive returns for the stock market. The first time in 90 years, again, was last year when that happened. 2017 was the first time in 90 years we saw every month was positive for the stock market. So right. uh, so 1927, not a bad year. 1928, not a bad year. These trends can last a long time. 1929 was a bit tough. Right. And so the sense is, you know, 2018 might also be another good year, but I think you're going to really run into, and I think people really have to understand, the impact of central bank action around the world and the raising of rates and what that's really going to do. All that's really going to do is cause asset managers and long-term investors to reevaluate valuations. And that, you know, when interest rates are 1.5%, the market may be fairly priced. But if interest rates go to 3%, the market's overvalued. And so, therefore, all it's going to have to do is adjust. And as long as people understand that, they set themselves up in such a, a way, a defensive position. But that's where they have people like you at Farm Miller, Washington, to help them manage that risk. Uh, God bless you. That's far with two R's, Miller and Washington. And for those who are not uh, paying, paying, paying close attention here, that's a very important comment about far. Miller and Washington. Okay, but Kenny, this thing uh, was a sentiment indicator, the bullish sentiment indicator. Why is a sentiment indicator, why is that important? Can you tell our listeners why it's important? Well, well you know, listen, it's, it's funny. You have to, either you put it, you make it important because you think it's important, but the sentiment indicator really just gives you a sense of what investors feel, right? So when it gets too bullish, uh, quite honestly, it almost becomes a contrarian indicator because there's so much bullishness out there that everyone expects the market goes higher and then it does exactly the opposite. And so you have to just be careful when if you pay too much attention to the to the sentiment indicators, right? They're great. Tells you how people feel. It gives you a sense of, of what investors feel and why they feel it because they talk about the reasons they're so bullish. But if it gets too bullish, it's like anything. The same way it gets too bearish, right? Everyone expects the market to go down. It does nothing but, but go up. You expect the market to go up, and all of a sudden, you know, it, it hits the top. It gets very toppy, and uh, and the buyers are exhausted, right? And, and it can change. And so it can change. It can change very quickly. So when sentiment can change very quickly, the thing that I've told clients for years is, you know, you make your mistakes at emotional moments. You you make right. your mistakes when you're scared and you think I've got to sell everything and go to cash because I just can't take it anymore. And when you say, right. by the way, I just can't take it anymore. That's a real feeling. You're not sounding, right. I mean, you might sound like a wimp. You might not sound like a wimp. But when you are truly scared, it is one of the hardest things in the world. I mean, you, you, you've you done this, Kenny. You've faced this fear before on the floor yep. for years, right? Yep. I mean, yep. how do you, How? what have you told yourself so that you can face those emotions and stay steely. I mean, and, and what well, advice would you give to the new person when they're trying to wrestle with themselves emotionally? Well, so, so you know, that's a, that's a great question because it was for sure. That's why I, I asked it, for God's it, sakes. I'm it, not here to it, ans- it, ask stupid questions, you know. It was, it was a learning process because I'll tell you something. Boris would be running the show if I were going <laughs> to ask stupid. Sorry, Boris. Go ahead, Ken. I'm ready, waiting for opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, but 1987 was very scary. Now, at the time, I was only young, so it wasn't I had so much to lose, but I saw the fear on the faces 
of a different range of people. So there were some people that reacted emotionally. There were other people that did exactly what you said. They remained steely, and I admired how they remained steely. I admired what they thought of the long term. They kept the long term at the forefront of their mind, right? So the yes. short-term noise, the short-term volatility, the short-term disaster, which it was, yep. as long as they were strong enough to understand what the long-term picture was, they remained. The guys who didn't, the guys who I saw panic and sell everything, in, in fact, they sold it right at the bottom because that's exactly what it was, the so, bottom of that event, right? We were down 22% in six and a half hours. That was the bottom from there. It rallied higher and continued to go continued to go all the way up until we hit uh, 1999. And boy, what and so an expensive mistake. Process. Yeah. Say it again. I mean, son, it was an expensive mistake, hugely expensive it, it, mistake. Learning process for me, too. I watched people. I mean, really, it was real. You could feel the fear and fear from right. clients, as they were calling them. And people are really upset. They thought they were losing it all. So That's right. And so it's going to be people like you, an advisor, that helps them actually get through that, through that, that sense of fear, right? Talking yes. to them. And listen, some people, they get, they get fearful. They want out. They want out. You can do all you want. They're That's right. Up and down and say, I want out. Well, then you take them out. You take but them out, and, and it's their money and their grownups, right? That's right. And then it ends up being a learning experience. But listen, everyone goes through it. It's not something you're born with. There's not a, there's not a directory that says, okay, this is how you're supposed to respond. You respond the way you respond based on, based on your own kind of experiences and upbringing. But after you do it once, you, un- you realize that, and you stick with it, and you keep the long-term goal at the forefront of your mind. So you listen to Far and Polkari ahead of time, too. Maybe if you haven't been through this, you're listening to two guys who have done this for over 30 years. We're telling you to make up your mind about how you're going to react in that fearful situation. Don't make up your mind as to what you're going to do once the guy points the gun at you. You want to know right. in your head very clearly how you're going to react when that moment comes. I think about two things, Kenny, and we're at the end of our time. I'm really sorry, but... Uh, and we hope you'll stay with us for the next segment if you can. But uh, I think, you know, at those more fearful times, I wonder what Warren Buffett's doing today. I found that to be a very helpful question. When everybody else is panicking, if you stop and he, say, I wonder if Buffett's pa- panicking, he isn't panicking, well, uh, is he, Kenny? He is not only is he not panicking, he's sitting there, he backs up the wagon, and he says, okay, you, you, because he takes advantage of the fear. Not that he's doing anything wrong. But right. he's backing up the truck saying, That's what you're supposed to do. I'll, I'll buy one of those. I'll buy two of those. Right. I'll take three that's of those. Exactly it's perfect. Right. Yeah. Uh, exactly so right. that's that's the other thing I think about is my partner, Sonny Miller, God rest his soul, uh, was a uh, um, Navy fighter pilot. And one day in 2008 and 2009, when the markets were really dropping and uh, our chief investment officer, now chief investment officer, then senior analyst Taylor McGowan was at the Bloomberg and he was really fretting. Uh, and, and, and Taylor said, I was just watching this thing plummet. And Sonny walked by and he said, what's going on? And Taylor said, the market is really, Captain Miller, the market's really falling. And Sonny said, huh, hey, look over there. Somebody brought in some cake today. Let's have some cake. And he said, you know, from the Navy fighter pilot, uh, when things are really bad, go have a piece of cake. Uh, we're at the end of this segment. Please stay with us for the next segment. We've got Matt Leffingwell coming back. We've got Kenny Polkari. We've got the great Neelu Howe coming back to us on the Farcast. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Farr. You're listening to Farcast. This portion of the Farcast is brought to you by Farr, Miller, and Washington Investment Council. Investment Council means we work for you. Our advice is tailored to you and to your needs and to reach your investment goals. At Farr, Miller, and Washington, we believe 
Money is hard to make, and we're going to work hard to keep it working for you. You're listening to Forecast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. There we go, rock and roll. Boris sets up this music for us. Our producer, Boris, sets up this music every week. Boris, that's a fabulous tune. It just gets me all excited. What, what are we listening to? I was hoping you would like this uh, song. This is a new song. It's called Kenny is One Month Older. Kenny is One Month Older. That's a fabulous <laughs> song. It's, is that popular in Russia? Oh, very right popular. Very, very popular. Very. It's uh, St. Petersburg. Yeah, they all dance to this. A lot of people know Kenny in uh, Russia. Oh, yes. They? He's very famous. Very there. famous in yes. Russia. A lot of, we have a lot of Farcast listeners, I think, in Russia. Do we not? Oh, yes. He's number one podcast. Uh, number one podcast <laughs> in Russia? That's right. Do you think Putin listens? I know Putin listens. He's listening right now. Listen, God, that's <laughs> wonderful. That's probably true about many of my conversations <laughs> on the cell phone and other places. We've got a great studio audience who came to listen to us tonight. Thank you very much, and welcome, friends, to the studio audience. Uh, we're going to go and talk now with our great friend, political analyst Matt Leffingwell. Uh, are you going to stay for dinner? I can't. I can't tonight. You can't stay for dinner? No. You know, I had to go out to a dinner last night. I, had, I was invited to yeah. this party. Started at 7 o'clock at the Prime Rib. Okay, yeah. very nice. I mean, very she-she. I got my first drink at the 7 Piano players. Do you know what time... I, and I thank you to my great hosts, and I hope, well, the hell with it. I didn't get my dinner until five minutes at 10 o'clock at night. They didn't put the plate down until five minutes at 10 o'clock at night. I go to bed at 10 o'clock. I don't start eating prime rib at 10 o'clock at night. I go to I snuck, <coughs> I snuck out of there. I'm getting so upset I can't even talk. I'm coughing. I'm choking. I'm so upset. It was delicious. I snuck out of there. I did the Irish goodbye at 11.20. Everybody's still sitting and talking and toasting. I'm ready just to gouge out my own eyes. Anyway, uh, I can't do these late night, you know, things and then try and be so chipper and resilient for the forecast within a 24-hour period. It just takes too much. And the prime rib's not even that hip of a spot, you know. Hip, hip. Hip. There were replaced hips in that place. There were more fake hips than hip people in that. Okay, so it has been a fabulous week. You all remember that Matt Leffingwell ran the uh, House Ways and Means Committee, the, uh, the Committee on Defense, the Committee to Reelect the President, um, the Appropriations. It's, he ran most of Capitol Hill. Uh, seriously, it was the Appropriations Committee. He was chief of staff for different folks. Anyway, a Washington insider, uh, bar none. Lots of, go- of stuff going on, of course, so this week in Washington. But the thing that struck me that I want to ask you about here, Matt, um, I watched, uh, so we, we watched this book come out, right? Right. And we watched Mr. Wolf respond, whom you liked, and other people, other journalists. I, que- I watch, uh, questioned him. I watched him on PBS. I watched, you know, uh, Judy Woodruff's show question and say, you know, the journalism wasn't quite as clean as uh, real journalists would mm-hmm. like. That seemed to be a popular sentiment. But then they televised, and the president then responded from Camp David, where he is a uh, this was the stable genius, right? Weekend? <laughs> right. That's right. He's a stable ge- Okay. So he made that very clear for anyone who was worried um, about his stability or his intellect. He assured us that he's both. But then they televised this um, uh, hearing where they were discussing DACA, where they were discussing uh, the wall in Mexico and immigration. And, and they televised it for an hour, mm-hmm. and the president looked... Um, I mean, I, 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 the president looked 
very much in control, yep. listening to everybody. He sounded like he was going to go. He said he would sign whatever they came up with. Uh, it sounded reasonable. It sounded like consensus. It didn't sound like one, you know, he was, he almost sounded much more centrist. Didn't sound particularly right wing or conservative when he said he would make these compromises. Right. So tell me what your take on yep. that was. Was that staged? But it, it, you watch for an hour, you got a sense of the real President Trump, I think. I, I, I was absolutely fascinated by this move. I thought it was extremely savvy of the White House to do this. The Democrats clearly looked very uncomfortable in that meeting. And I think that it, it was to put their feet to the fire a bit and not let them have control of the of the conversation on DACA at the moment. And he said one other really reasonable thing in that as well, which he would support earmark reform. Not only would he support— I saw that. And that that is the most reasonable thing I've ever heard him but, say. But Republicans don't say that. No, absolutely not. Republicans I mean, don't want any—they they got rid of the earmarks because they— Felt that there was just way too much pork going to too many unknown places. Right. I mean, and you had situations like the Bridge to Nowhere, an egregious example of, you know, $400 million earmark going to, you know, connecting an unknown island in Alaska to mainland Alaska, right? But however, like for him to see, you know, when I was on the committee, there were a number of efforts behind the scenes to try to bring earmarks back because most members of Congress support that. They realize that they know how to direct money to their congressional districts better than anybody at any agency does. Yep. Yep. So this was so this was kind of staged. But for an hour, you can't. I mean, I, I, I don't I wouldn't want to be the guy who had to script. President Trump for a full hour. I wouldn't want to script him for 10 minutes. Because, I mean, I wouldn't trust. I mean, he seems to take the direction he wants to take, yep. and he's intent on being himself. I mean, whatever the president's doing and whatever uh, Donald Trump has figured out in, t in terms of running his life and his conversation, I mean, he's a very successful guy. This is working for him. <laughs> right. So um, uh, you, you don't, I don't think you second-guess any of that. But a, a full hour... I mean, what yeah. did he accomplish? I, I watched Steny Hoyer, whom I like so much. I've known Steny for years. Absolutely. I mean, what a really, I mean, if you just get to know Steny Hoyer, Steny Hoyer is one of the nicest guys you ever going to I don't care if you agree with his politics or disagree with his politics. Steny Hoyer is not only is he nice, he's really funny. He's a lot of fun. Agreed. You want to have a beer with somebody? Agreed. Steny Hoyer. That's so right. he did not. He was handling it pretty well, but he, uh, you you saw him roll his eyes. A couple ah, yeah, of times. there were a few times I thought he had like kidney stones. I mean, he looked <laughs> he, looked, he looked so uncomfortable. But he, you know, he to your well, just. I mean, I watched. I don't think they passed. By the way, <laughs> I think there's still a chronic issue with the kidney. I you know I also thought it was notable that you didn't have uh, you know you didn't have Schumer or Pelosi necessarily right. there. You had you know Durbin and Hoyer and you know sort of the seconds in command for each the House and Senate Democratic leadership. Yeah, but they. They swing big sticks, those guys. They, oh, without a doubt. But you know, it's no secret that you know Hoyer and Pelosi are not close at all. Right. right. So I mean, I'm sure. I'm Did sure I mention that, that Steny was really nice and a lot of fun? I. <laughs> <laughs> well, you no. Know, I mean, but I moving I, right along. I, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> no, I do think I do think Trump looked like he was in control of the conversation, whereas, you know, going into what happened, you know, like and said, you know, last night with the with the San Francisco judge, you know, ruling that, you know, uh, inserting an injunction, whereas, you know, the Trump, you know, Trump repeal of the Obama rule of DACA, the Dreamers Act, um, would not could not go could not be repealed at this time. So that buy some time. However, it's widely viewed that, you know, on appeal, that DACA will, will the, the, Trump's decision on DACA will remain legal. Okay. So, uh, now, how does this change the debate? Does this take some Democratic 
leverage off the table. I mean, we got an upcoming shutdown, right? Yep. And they're going to try and get a continuing resolution, or they're going to try and get a budget deal. I mean, what's it take to get a budget deal out of these guys? Yeah, you know what? I don't think there's going to be any. I don't think this takes any pressure off of Congress to do something now on immigration. I this it's it was there was bipartisan statements. You know, John Cornyn, for example, Schumer. They all agree that there's there, something needs to urgently be done on immigration. Uh, second, uh, you know, going back to the earmark conversation, the Democrats and members of Congress do not have the leverage of having, you know, stake or, you know, uh, stake in the game with earmarks in these bills. So therefore, they use these other issues that are non-appropriations related, like DACA, in order to, you know, to, to negotiate. They're going to use. They're going to continue. So this to is use a us. bargaining chip. Absolutely, it, it's, it is. It's and not as. It's. I mean, it, 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 this is. It, nobody is really focusing on right. DACA being the issue. It's just because it involves children is is power charged with the electorate. I guess that, that's exactly right. And it, and you know the president has been pretty opaque on you know exactly where he's going to go with it. In fact, he had a statement that said you know whatever bill comes to me needs to be a, be a bill based on love. <laughs> I saw the president talking about love. It was touching. It was really touching. And then, okay, so then there was the judge in San Francisco who said that the DACA protections must remain in place. That's correct. Okay, so what what is what does that mean? Because we've seen these judges, you know, rule on the immigration ban. They could, you couldn't, yep. you could, yep. you couldn't. So Supreme Court held up the yep. president's That's power right. or most of it to do what he wanted and, to do there. And this was a case, you know, that, that was brought to the judge by, uh, you know, Janet Napolitano and, and Javier Becerra, uh, you know, two, two Democrats, um, amongst others, and you know the judge ruled the San Francisco judge ruled in their favor, but it's widely held view that on appeal, which the White House is likely to appeal very soon, um, that the White House will win that appeal. So they're going to win that appeal. And there were some deportations actually that started today. There were some raids yeah. uh, that I saw of, I believe, of convenience stores was the headline that I saw, wow. and and arrests were made today. Yep, that's correct. Okay, so uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is an economic issue. As you look at GDP growth in this country, there are a couple of different ways to think about how the gross domestic product can grow. Don't let your eyes glaze over, please. I'm going to keep this really pretty simple. I'm going to take a look. One way is to take the growth in the labor force, growth in population growth, but labor force, okay, uh, plus the growth in productivity. Very simple calculation. Uh, uh, can I add 10 more people, and how much are they going to produce, and now I know how much my product is. So uh, I'm looking for growth. So if I'm going to grow in the U.S., where am I growing my population? Right now, the United States is experiencing about four-tenths of 1% Organic population growth. The U.S. population is growing at just four-tenths of 1%. Fertility rates in the U.S. are as low as they have been in decades. Okay, this is, And that happens in bigger, developed countries, wealthier countries. People choose to have fewer kids. This isn't a medical issue when we talk about falling fertility rates. This is a choice to have children, and it measures, I believe, women ages 15 or 16 to 44, and it's a percentage of births per thousand women in those age ranges. So um, we get four-tenths of a percent from uh, organic growth. We get three-tenths of a percent from immigration, legal and illegal. So I'm not making a political comment here, but that's seven-tenths of a percent. If I can pick up one percent or a little bit better, I can see my way clear to two percent, maybe more, of GDP growth. But if you start whittling away at that population growth, you start whittling away at GDP growth. So 
whether you, I mean, I, I don't want illegal immigrants. I'm not advocating any of that. But I need bodies. I need more workers who are going to be more productive and going to grow GDP, period. That's math. Yep. Yes? Yep. Yeah, absolutely right. And, you know, not so only- what is it that Capitol Hill doesn't get about that? It, it, they're they're uh, afraid of the far right wing. I mean, the far right wing of the Republican Party has caused so much havoc with people's elections and so much money has gone into this. And, and frankly, the people who are so vehemently opposed to immigration are the ones who supported Trump. But they can do math. I mean, I know <laughs> I know some of those guys. They, they can count. Well, I mean, then there's those who can't do math, like me. <laughs> well, and we worry about you. And the guy, you know, this is the guy who ran the House Appropriations <laughs> Committee, for God's sake. Again. But, you know, one more point on that. You know, and I thought our conversation on immigration a few weeks. What was the first weeks, point? Well, I, the, your, your point, your, oh, your point. economic Good. point. Okay. But then if we're going to deport 200,000 El Salvadorians, for example, yes. how are we going to pay for that? That's not cheap. Right. Oh. And it's a, to the, all the law enforcement uh, resources and homeland resources that go into that effort is a very expensive, uh, you know, expensive effort to go into. So is this changing the math as you're looking at the midterm elections coming up? And we're hearing about the midterm elections now yep. and, and how people are positioning and how the Democrats and Republicans are positioning themselves. We, we got news that another Republican member of Congress is Darryl going to retire. Daryl Issa, that's right. Yep. Who? Daryl Issa. Daryl Issa yep. is going to retire that's correct uh, at, at the end of this term Ed so Royce was another announcement this week and so we have a couple yep. of more Republican seats that are going to be open and, and under battle and they're largely Republican districts still yeah, but that's right uh, it depends how the news story goes so Republicans seem to be uh, intent or at least buying time not screwing up uh, and, and hoping that these tax cuts will generate enough economic activity yep. before November, right? Am I yeah, reading no, this right? I mean, this is right. what I'm reading. Is you're, that what you're, no, you're, no, you're is right. Is that the strategy? Yeah, it's, it's a strat- it is a strategy. <laughs> I- <laughs> it is somebody's strategy. But, but listen, i got to point out that you know Republicans are now defending 31 open seats. The two seats in California, I mean, are frankly going to be very difficult for them to defend. Issa had, you know, was looking good in the polls leading up to his announcement, uh, you know, today. But, you know, you know, Ed Royce was looking to have a very difficult uh, campaign going forward. 31 seats with a president whose popularity is in the 30s is, right. is, is, is a very bad recipe. And, you know, I was in Congress in 2006 and 2008 with their wave elections. And this is starting to feel like a wave, wave cycle to me. I don't know that tax cuts say that. Okay, so uh, before we finish, and I know we're out of time on our segment here with Matt, with the great and insightful and very bright Matt Leffingwell. I really appreciate you joining us every week, Matt. This this is so great for our listeners to get your insight. And this is a crucial question now. This is what is on the mind of most every American. Tell me about Oprah. <laughs> no, no, no. Tell me. Really. I, how do well, you feel? How do you really feel I, about <laughs> Oprah? In your heart of hearts. I mean, feel? why in the world would she want to run for president? I, ask Stedman Graham. I don't know. Stedman I, says I she's mean, up for it. I, I really don't know why she would want to run for president. I think it'd be a very, you know, she, an entertainer, I mean, not, and well, look, Trump is an anomaly to that, right? But I think an entertainer has a hard time transitioning into campaigns. I have this vision of like the State of the Union where she looks out and says, all of you members of Congress now standing up should look under your seats for a brand new car. You're going to get a car. I mean, 
I, I'm picturing the gift bags at the, on their seats at State of the Union. It could be. I well, mean, this could change. I mean, certainly, I can't wait to see President Trump's State of the Union coming up here. I, this ought to be fabulous, right? It's going to be huge. I, uh, we're but, overtime. But okay. keep, tell, uh, but tell me. One, one, Oprah, thing, tell one me about thing about Oprah, about Oprah I'll yes. save to, in her advantage, is that is are women. Women are the majority of the electorate. 51% of the U.S. electorate are women. And so, look, if you put Democrats plus women... There is the man. Wait a minute, we did that last time. We got Donald Trump. <laughs> but, but I'm telling you, we should get Donald Trump again. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that anyone could mobilize women as much as Oprah Winfrey could, and that's that is a that's a huge thing. I don't think Hillary had the uh, you know panache to push women to the final the question. Bush. Does the government yes. shut down on the uh, no. 19th? No, it does not. It They're going to get a CR, and we're not going to shut down. So there yep. it is on the forecast, yep. ladies and gentlemen. You've got some more inside scoop. Leffingwell, who said no tax bill, is now saying no shutdown. It was the only time I was wrong. As a baseball umpire, we say the, the, the count is, uh, you, you know, 0-1 uh, uh, um, here. So let's see what it what, what this next pitch. That was a fat one down the middle for Leffingwell. Uh, we are going to come right back. Please stay with us with the famous, fabulous, wonderful Nilu Howe. This is a terrific forecast, and it's just going to get better, I promise. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Farr. You're listening to Forecast. This portion of the Farcast is brought to you by Farr Miller and Washington Investment Council. Investment Council means we work for you. Our advice is tailored to you and to your needs and to reach your investment goals. At Farm Miller in Washington, we believe money is hard to make, and we're going to work hard to keep it working for you. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. What fabulous music that is, Boris. I just love it. Welcome back to Farcast. We're having a great show tonight. This is really terrific. We had my great friend Kenny Polcari talking about the markets, talking about what people getting nervous from what's going on in the bond market in China. The Chinese are going to stop buying our bonds. Stocks pulled back, but it doesn't seem to be that sentinel event that Kenny's been looking for. He's still looking for a pullback in stocks in the first quarter of 18. So you've got to keep sticking with us and listening to Kenny. Great segment with Matt Leffingwell, our great political analyst, trying to figure out how the game has shifted as we aired this fabulous, interesting debate with the president negotiating DACA and tax, uh, whether we're going to have tax reform, whether we're going to have a continuing resolution. Absolutely fabulous discussion. And we're talking about the economic impact, too, of immigration and what it all means, because we are losing potential workers in this country. Legal or illegal, we need some kind of population growth because we need more workers, we need greater productivity, and that's the way it works. Boris, but before I get to our fabulous guest, that was a fabulous song you just played. It was a very good song, was it not? It was terrific, toe-tapping. That I was song dancing is, in my seat. It was always good to see you dance in your seat, Mr. Farr. Yes. It, this is an old song from the 30s called, That's Not My Girlfriend, That's My Goat. So <laughs> it was very popular back in Stalin's day. <laughs> Stalin, that's yes. not my yes. do want, That's not my girlfriend. That's my goat. That's my goat. Uncle Joe loved that very much. I, I, I <laughs> Uncle Joe loved it. That's fabulous. Young people still hum it to themselves. They do. They do. Most because down. they fear imprisonment if they don't hum it. So. <laughs> uh, oh, I, I don't even know why I ask anymore, <laughs> Boris, about you and your musical selections. All right. 
when we think about things that are going to affect the economy, and remember last week we talked about the opioid crisis in this country, uh, the leading cause of death now for people under the age of 50 in the U.S., that the average lifespan in the U.S. is actually getting shorter, not because old people aren't getting older, but because young people aren't getting older. That affects the workforce. There's an economic impact. We, we've, tonight, we're going to talk with Nilu Howe, who is the chief strategy officer, senior vice president of strategy and operations at RSA. Uh, this is one of the, uh, she leads overall corporate strategy, corporate developments. Look, she is really uh, a brilliant, brilliant strategist with wonderful experience. She's a graduate of Columbia uh, University in English literature, Harvard Law degree, she was chief strategy officer at Endgame. She was managing director and chief investment officer at the Paladin Group. She started with McKinsey and Company. I mean, you want to talk about a blue chip resume? I mean, Nilu, this welcome to the Farcast. But this is a hell of a good resume. Thank you. You can also call me a professional flake. It just depends how you look at it. <laughs> By the way, I just want to say, as a cybersecurity person, it makes me really uncomfortable to be on a show with someone with a Russian accent. What? So <laughs> that's look, just uh, a really tough way to start this podcast. He was going to be able to access this podcast, you know, no we matter like what. Well, yes. We know they're listening, but they're not usually participating so openly. <laughs> he's, he's, he's here for his music. Right. I'm just here as DJ for show. Sure, that's he's right. here for the DJ show. Right. You know we're very popular in Russia, the Farcast. Very popular. And what Boris has assured me that uh, Mr. Putin himself is listening to the yes. forecast. Well, he has microphones placed inside Perhaps studios. Perhaps even so. as we <laughs> yes. speak. Okay, you know, that's, that's kind of, it, it, it is funny and it's a, it's, it's a great, um, uh, great go-to, very easy joke to go to uh, about the Russians listening. But Nilu, people really are listening, aren't they? I mean, cybersecurity is a real issue and it's an issue for us economically. So if I, what I'd like to ask you, uh, we, we talked uh, a little bit over the weekend, how safe is the U.S. network of computers? How safe are our corporate computers? How safe are the Pentagon's computers? Can the White House get hacked? I mean, are we safe? Are we not safe? What's the level of the threat? How much attention should we be paying? Are we paying enough attention? Well, I, the answer is, of course, if you are at all listening to what's going on out there, the headlines are filled with breaches left and right. And the breaches aren't limited to the consumers. Breaches aren't limited to companies. They're, they include the government as well. I have personally been open source because every government agency seems to be What does hacked. that mean, you've been open source? <laughs> Between the IRS hack, the OPM hack, you can go online and get all my information. It's, uh, the government is not able to protect its own networks. When you let say alone get all your information, what can, you can go online and get all your information. How much of your info? What can I get? I can get your well, credit here's, cards here's or your health records? Uh, what I'll, can I get? I'll tell you one thing that's really interesting about what happened, what's happened over the last 18 months is we used to talk about the dark web, and the dark web was yes. where you went to understand what the criminals were doing. With less than a 1% prosecution rate, guess what? The criminals don't need to do anything on the dark web anymore. They're conducting their en enterprises on the web using Facebook, using Twitter, using WhatsApp. They don't need to hide. They're not afraid. They're crowdsourcing their capabilities, and they're working together to conduct amazing criminal enterprises. Um, and by the way, there are no social norms online. So if you want to talk about being safe, we have to think about the context that we live in and this infrastructure that we keep tying ourselves to in every aspect of our lives. The Internet was not conceived to be safe. 
the Internet was conceived to be open and to be interoperable. At the time, it didn't really matter because it was a very small group of entities that were communicating with each other. Today, it has national security implications, but we're still on the same Internet that was designed to be open, that was designed to be interoperable, and was not designed to be safe. So I read this book, Nilu, called American Kingpin, about this guy sure. who started the Silk Road. If you haven't read this book, ladies and gentlemen, I really strongly it's commend it It's a fun summer read. <laughs> it is a great summer read, and it's amazing what this kid did, right, in developing this drug trade online using Bitcoin and the Tor browser because the Tor browser is anonymous is what is what it says but you they don't care if you're anonymous or or there's ways to mask your print uh, footprint online now absolutely so here's what's really interesting about the kingpin story and the whole story of silk road when he founded silk road he actually believed he was doing something good right he was allowing people to transact and buy and sell whatever they wanted online, and he viewed that as a social good. And because goes, he didn't think that drugs should be restricted, he disagreed with the laws, correct. and he could impose his own laws if he just said, we, we, well, and here's we'll what's send you the drugs in the mail. He's not alone. So if you look at cyberspace, there's only one social norm that is agreed on universally in cyberspace. There's only one. There's only one, okay, there's only one social norm agreed in upon cyberspace, correct. which is? Child pornography is bad. Outside of that, when it comes to crime, hate speech, IP theft, um, cyber crime, cyber war, there are no agreed upon social norms. And it's the one domain that's not geographically limited. So if you want to have a norm, it can't just be a U.S. norm, right? Brazil, China, Israel, Russia all have to agree for it to actually work. So what he did, he's not alone in believing that people should be able to transact and buy and sell anything they want online, as long as you don't touch child pornography. And the government just changed our internet standards, didn't they? It changes our, our, our rules of behavior uh, on the internet. The standards don't really matter. Again, you have this free and open system. And so when it comes to people who don't care about regulation and don't get prosecuted from a criminal perspective, it really doesn't matter what standards you promulgate out there. The, the, the infrastructure itself can be used for any uh, okay. end. Okay, so uh, you're describing a very vulnerable world, right? I mean, uh, uh, right. this that, that uh, cyber security is beginning to sound kind of like a I myth. don't mean to scare you. Am I scaring you? You've scared me a lot, and, and you've <laughs> scared me in the past. And uh, not only on this subject, by the way, you've scared me on other subjects. Uh, Nilu and I have been uh, friends for a long time, uh, truly a, a great friend and have done lots of work together in charities in Washington uh, and, and other enterprises. But uh, she is an expert's expert, so we're very, very fortunate to have her with us here tonight. But so, Nilu, it, it doesn't sound like, it, it, you're making cybersecurity sound like a myth. You have to define what your ends are, right? Again, you're, you're con if you choose to connect to the internet, to this internet, you're choosing to connect to infrastructure that is designed to be open, that is designed to be interoperable, and is not designed with security in mind. And in fact, if you look at what happened this past few weeks with the big breach that everyone's talking about, right, with Spectre and Meltdown, um, these no, are... Okay, now wait, Spectre and Meltdown. Just uh, Am I getting technical? Am I getting too technical? Well, yeah. <laughs> is that what's happening? Am what I talking about Bond and messing everything up here? <laughs> we're, not, we're not really at the James Bond movie, but there has been a... Great discussion this week uh, about a vulnerability in the processing chips, and the and and Spectre is the name assigned, correct, Nilo? Spectre uh, and Meltdown. And Meltdown, 
Correct. are these defects that allow access through the processor, the Intel processor, the Intel inside that's supposed to be such a good thing might not be such a good thing. It opens a door for trouble, yes? It, it does, and it actually points to the heart of the issue that we're facing with, right, which is we want, um, we want processors to be as fast as possible, and we've moved to parallel processing in order to improve computing power. And there is this trade-off between uh, improving operating efficiency and with resiliency and with security. So as we create all these new technologies, whether it's faster processors, whether it's Internet of Things, um, whether it's quantum computing, et cetera, there, there are security implications, and they don't tend to be front and center as we design technology. They haven't been with Internet of Things. We dealt with that last year with the Mirai botnet attack. So at some point, we need to come to a realization that security can't be an afterthought. It has been since the you know, are internet this, was invented. Okay, but are the security safeguards that we have now, you know, my password, one, two, three, four, five? Perfect. I mean, don't change it. Don't change <laughs> it. Do you use that for your banking applications? That's all I need to know. <laughs> Should I not? No, I no, mean, I think I, it's perfect. Just keep it. Password, I one, two, three, I might four. Do one, two, three, and four. you're with which banks again? Five, five. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, five, or one, one, two, three, four, five. I, I, I trick people up because I double one of the numbers you see on one end or the other. Nobody, but it's only one, two, three, four, and five, right? Yeah. Okay, I mean, perfect. Now that's all I need to know. Five different numbers. I mean, when you consider the permutation. So my, I've got my password. I mean, we, the, the, the password encryption, though, uh, you have the password because the number of variables and signs, and, and it can't be right now broken very easily. And there are these websites we use, of course, where it tells you how safe that password is and be tested. So is that really our main protection? Is it, is, it, is it these passwords and codes that actually encrypt and put up a wall to protect the data? So there's a difference between encryption and with passwords. Passwords are not the be-all, end-all. In fact, we're kind of in a post-password world. Um, even when you authenticate... I've got to come up with something other than one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> the good news is most of the important applications have already done that. So when you're authenticating to your banking yeah. application, you use a username and password. Yeah. But there's a whole bunch of machine learning that goes behind it to, to, make sh to know where you're authenticating from, what device. So there's 30, 40, 50, sometimes 100 factors that go in to decide whether there's any risk that you are actually not Michael Farr. Now, encryption is very different than passwords. So security is a chain. Encryption is the strongest link in the chain. Okay. And the weakest link is you. Yes. Is I'm the, the one who's going to make the mistake. Correct. Human beings. I've and actually heard Boris was telling me <laughs> earlier that he had heard from sources which I think you said they couldn't be named. That's that, right. Certain sources. <laughs> certain sources. We live in the East. I'll Putin. That, that. that the... That the um, Putin. That, that, that uh, uh, in, the, in the White House... The, the president's actual code for the nuclear arms is 12345, and that he and I have that in common. That was what Boris was telling me. It was somebody whose name rhymes with Mouton. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, the White House is not responsible for encrypting or coding uh, uh, okay. nuclear so capabilities. So tell us, uh, how much, uh, how much uh, of our data is really threatened, and what's the real level of risk to these key centers of whether it's banking uh, or, or whether it's the Defense Department. Uh, so there is no question that when it comes to privacy and confidentiality, everything's at risk. We live in a 100% breach world, and um, we do not live... A 100% breach world? Tell me what that means. You've been breached. 
It's I've just a question breached? of whether or not you know you've been breached. Does That's my wife know that? I should. <laughs> dear God. Oh, you know, now I'm getting uncomfortable here, marriage. Michael. This is Down going the, somewhere very inappropriate. Lori, this is not on me. <laughs> everybody, so you can't really stay safe, and everybody's going to be hacked at some point. Is There's what a you're difference saying? between safe and private. And we can't conflate those two issues. So we actually, and this is something that um, I think is very problematic when we talk about privacy and confidentiality. People conflate the issue of privacy with the issue of civil liberties. We have lived at times when we have had a ton of privacy, think 1800s, but no civil liberties. And we now live in a world today where we have a ton of civil liberties, but actually no privacy. So those are two very different issues that we can't conflate. In fact, the, no one's phone call anywhere in the world was tapped in 1800. Nobody listened in to any, not one single phone call in 1800. And it wasn't until a dinner party in the late 1800s involving a Supreme Court justice got written up in the Boston papers that we came up with the concept of privacy. Hmm. So now, we've, when we were talking, you brought me this notion of quantum computing. Uh, and, and would you tell me? Did I mean to do that? I so apologize for that. <laughs> well, I, I kind of. <laughs> no one know, wants to talk about quantum computing. Come well, on. Well, <laughs> no, I kind of glazed over, but then you kind of scared me again, uh, so I paid attention again. So, would you just quantum computing? Because this was this was important, and it's going on, right? Tell us about yes. it, would you? So, there's a race and, for and, and China. I'm sorry, I don't say that right, Matt. How China. Do you say? China. Sorry. China. How would China. Boris say it? We would say neighbor to east. <laughs> Friendly neighbor to East. <laughs> so uh, t- t- China is really uh, uh, well beyond what the U.S. is doing in their advancements in quantum computing right now. Well, so I, I don't have personal insights into where Chinese research uh, uh, levels are with respect to quantum computing. But, f- but every major power in the globe is interested in quantum computing. The reason quantum computing is interesting from a security perspective is today it takes a lot of computing power and time to break encryption. It's very hard. It takes years to break encryption. If we get to quantum computing before we have post-quantum crypto, then we can break encryption. Whoever gets there first can break encryption. Can break all encryption. Can break all encryption. So that's why quantum computing really matters, and we have to make sure that we are, as a country, investing in research and engineering as a national security priority. Okay, so it doesn't take any great theoretician to figure out how we could be economically viable if all of our data suddenly were available to everyone. So, and, and I'm already out of time on the segment, Neela, but, but t- We have so us. much left to I talk know, about. Well, so you've got to you? come back. But, <laughs> so, but I, I, want, I want you to talk about um, the value of data uh, and what we should be doing with our data uh, and storing it and protecting it. And you were saying to me that it's really, if you put it all out there, then you're not really all that, you you remove one of the vulnerabilities, correct? So there's a couple things when it comes to data, and I don't mean to make this boring, but one is just resiliency and redundancy of the data, right? You, you want to make sure you're not down. You want to say, you want to use the words resiliency and redundancy, and you don't want it to be boring. Really? 
Resiliency We're talking about cybersecurity. Okay, this ahead, isn't exactly, ahead, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about a sexier topic, but. Redundancy. Okay, resiliency. Wait. Go, 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 go. Okay, no, no, you tell me. How do we make data, data privacy sexy? I, I'm hoping uh, you're going to get there. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing. Tell me, I got tell, nothing. Tell me I'm safe. Well, I mean, it sounded like, you know, uh, from what you were saying, that the trick was. Um, uh, uh, to get over your phobia and open the raincoat and the kimono, well, and there the, you go. There's a couple things, by the way. Anymore. I think there are a few things everyone can do to be to be safe. First of all, um, uh, you have to. We talk a lot about shiny objects in the cybersecurity industry, but it's really about opera, operationalizing what you have today and automating really boring stuff. If you look at the big headlines of this past year, it was about old, outdated, unpatched systems that weren't being properly managed. If you can do that, yes you're actually solving a huge part of the problem. So okay. if you just operationalize the security products you have, you automate the boring stuff, and most importantly, you solve the human problem. We are, human beings have a flawed operating system. We do things really poorly. We have bad passwords like you do, we code incorrectly, we upgrade incorrectly, we patch incorrectly, and managing that human resource problem is something that needs a lot of attention. The insider threat, both the unwitting and the intentional insider, we have to tie it back to our policies we have around, uh, around people and make sure that we're securing them as much as we're securing the technology and the assets we have. Fabulous. It's still boring. I didn't know that. No, make no, it no, sexy, no, no, no. That's fabulous. Those are steps, those are real practical steps that we can take to actually protect the security of our country. I, I hope that um, some of our politicians are listening to the forecast and not just President Putin. Uh, well, I, I would like to say I just got a text. There is a job opportunity for you in Moscow. I've been authorized <laughs> to tell you that. Talk to me after show. <laughs> Th it's thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll exchange. Actually, Boris, you already have my information. I, I so. do. We've got everything. Boris has a lot of opportunities. So uh, if, if, you, if you go through a, a breach... I mean, here are the steps to protect yourself and, and to protect our human elements. And then how do you survive a breach? Yeah, so this is what's really important. If you look at the markets today, the markets don't uh, really move if you've been breached because everyone's breached. The markets move depending on how you respond to the breach. So, so there's a very clear four-step process from my perspective. Your first call has to be to your lawyers, right? You need to protect um, attorney-client privilege. And by the way, the regulatory environment has gotten so complex that you need to make sure as you're managing breach response, the lawyers are front and center. The second thing is you need a third party to come in and figure out what happened, not because you can't figure it out, but the team that was responsible for your security um, can't be the team that figures out what went wrong, and you need the credibility of a third party. You have to manage your message. You can never put a security person in front of a camera because that's not what they're trained to do. CEOs build credibility with their customer base for a reason, and this is the right time for the CEO to stand up and use some of that credibility to manage the message. And the most important part of this is you have to have a culture of learning where you don't punish the messenger and the bad news, whoever bears the bad news, isn't punished for it, but you actually put in a process to learn from it. So those are sort of the four key steps to, you know, surviving a breach. Starts with the lawyers, for better or worse. <laughs> um, Everything the, does. But the CEO <laughs> man has to, the CEO, she has to own it. The CEO, she has to own it. I, I, I like it. I think it's fabulous advice. Listening to the forecast, I can't thank you enough, Nilu Hao, for being with us. But, uh, you know, if you're listening to this and you understand the threat and you understand that we're all, we've already been breached probably and don't even know it, 
Nilu Howe, who is an expert's expert, has laid out steps on how we can have a safer cyber U.S., a safer cyber United States. And if your company, if your corporation, you're all vulnerable out there, here are the four steps you need to put in place now so that you can have a stronger public company. In fact, it's incumbent upon you, if you're there looking out for the shareholder's interest, actually to make sure that you've got a plan in place that Nilu has described. The lawyers, you need a third-party solution. You've got to manage your message, so work on your crisis communications before you have a crisis, and it has to be the head Fred or Frederica, as Nilu mentioned, and to encourage a culture of learning. I think that's so important across corporate America right now. I can't tell you how fascinating this has been, how much I've learned tonight. Nilu, how? Thank you very much. I hope you'll come back. Anytime, Michael. Please, please, please. And thank you all very much for tuning in again to the Farcast. Please remember that if you think you've heard any recommendation to buy or sell any security or that you've received any information or an idea to change your portfolio or allocations or do anything with your money, you haven't. Please know my lawyers will shoot me very quickly if they thought that anything like that had happened. So uh, if you do think that you maybe should do something uh, based on any of the information you've heard on the forecast, please contact your investment professional or, of course, give us a call at Farr, Miller & Washington. We are here uh, every day. I've got a full team of people there every day, all day, trying to help our investors and our clients towards a better tomorrow for themselves. We're going to be back next week. We've got a fabulous program coming up. Learn stuff every week here on the Farcast. Please share it with a friend. Please share it on your social media. We thank you so much. You're terrific to be with us. For Matt Leffingwell and Kenny Polcari, for Boris, and this week, of course, for Nilu Howe, we thank you so much for joining us. This has been The Farcast. I'm Michael Farr.